Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are visiting with us today, um, we have started a look at this book of 1 Corinthians, and it will occupy us uh, for most of uh, this year. Uh, We'll take a few breaks here and there, but it will be our focus, and uh, this is the third week that we have been looking at it. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, I want to start reading at verse 10, and we're going to read verses 10 to 17. And uh, this is our focus uh, this morning, is these few verses, uh, great verses, as Paul now begins to deal with some of the problems that have been arising in this particular church. Starting at verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be unified in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, and I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Father, we thank you for just these moments to gather together with this group of people and to gather our thoughts now around your word. We have been getting on the same page in our worship, in song, and as the choir has led us in worship, as Barry prayed and as we gave. And now, Father, I pray that you'll get us on the same page as it relates to your word. Father, we all bring our own preconceived notions and problems and issues and perspectives to your word. And sometimes that makes it difficult for us to understand it and make sense of it or even to come to an agreement on it. I pray, Father, that there will be a work in our hearts so even today that we might be able to see through all of what we bring to the word and allow your word to speak loudly and clearly to us this morning. Make the book live, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is now beginning to deal with some of the numerous problems that are in the church in Corinth. And, of course, one of the problems that they are facing is division and a lack of unity. And it will be something that uh, he will reference again and again throughout this book. I understand that quarrels are part of life. Quarrels are part of our marriages. They're part of our family life, they're part of our work relationships, they're part of just, uh, just about every sphere of our lives. But that doesn't mean that quarrels are necessarily a good thing, nor is the source of quarrels a positive source. Um, James himself will tell us as he writes on these sorts of things, he says, what, quor- what causes fights and quarrels among you? I don't know if you've had a fight this week with somebody, but um, this might be relevant then for you. What causes quarrels and fights among you, James writes? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. 
I hope none of you have done that. Um, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Paul will write in the letter to Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, that quarreling, the same word that's used here, quarreling, is part of, of the work of the flesh. And he says there in uh, Galatians chapter 5, 19, now the works of the flesh are ev evident. And he lists a number, and then he comes to these. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You see, the heart of our quarreling is our sinful nature and our self-centeredness. I think uh, if you've ever been in situations where you're united, you're, you understand that unity is attractive. There's something beautiful about people getting on the same page together. There's something... Um, ugly about a bunch of robots all doing the same thing. You think, well, that's no big deal. They're all a bunch of robots and there's no individuality there. But there's something beautiful when a whole group of people who come from different backgrounds and different perspectives and different social categories get along. And there's something amazing about that. There's a verse in the scriptures that was part of um, our memorization tools with our kids as they were growing up. And we tried different ways to get the word of God in them. But one of the things that I did was I wrote out um, uh, 26 scriptures that all started with a different letter of the alphabet so that our kids could memorize them. I don't know if they ever memorized the whole 26. Maybe the incentive wasn't big enough. But the second um, letter in that uh, acrostic memorization sheet that I gave the kids was B. And it was from Psalm 133.1. It's this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. <laughs> I have three boys. There was an ulterior motive to that. But I rejoice today when I get together with my boys and when they text me how much they love each other and how they get along with each other and the unity that is in them. And maybe this had a small part to play in that. But beyond my own family, this is just a reference by the psalmist to how beautiful unity is. And so it's something that we ought to strive with. Unity in the church is critical because it undergirds both the joy of Christian ministry and the credibility of Christian testimony. If you're familiar with the prayer of Jesus that he, he prays in John 17, a, a good portion of that in different places is given to this, this um, goal of unity. And Jesus prays that we might be one as a body of believers, as Christians around the world, so that we might give testimony to the unity that he w has with the Father and that the Father desires to have with us. And so Paul begins to deal with this question of disunity in the church. And he begins in verse 10 with, I think, just an amazing description of unity, how it's achieved, what it's involved. And you'll hear me make reference to this along the way because I think this is one of the best verses that you can apply to unity in any situation. Marriage, family, work, these are great principles that you can apply there. But this is a picture of what unity looks like. And Paul begins by simply saying, I appeal to you. It's a wonderfully warm word. It's not a word that has power behind it. It's not a word that has position behind it. He's not sort of pulling that trump card that says, listen, you got to do what I say. Rather, behind this appeal is a warmth and, and a trust and a, a, a sort of a desire that they, they are equals together and that they ought to be striving for this goal of unity together. He adds to it, uh, and I'll come back to this phrase, brothers, but he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that, uh, um, uh, 
or I appeal to you as brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus, is so important. We've already seen that, that he says in verse 9 that God has called us into fellowship through the name of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says a little bit earlier in the letter that the Corinthians are not alone in calling out to the name of the Lord, that in fact every believer anywhere in the world also calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incredible unifying factor. It says that's what we all have in common. And I think even as a marriage, I think this is one of the reasons why, why the Bible and Paul says, you know, you ought not to be married unequally yoked, that you ought not to be married with a Christian and a non-Christian because you don't share that significant point of unity, which is calling on together the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a work that takes place in our lives as we begin to submit to Christ that helps us to submit to one another. And so Paul is laying the groundwork for unity. And then he says, I appeal to you brothers. That's a, that's a term that also can include sisters. It's a, it's a generic term. And it, what he's saying, this is a family metaphor as well. He says, listen, we're family. We are family. <laughs> but there's this, this, this sort of um, foundation of unity that Paul is laying as he's beginning to address this difficult topic with these Corinthian believers. And I, I thought of this term, you know, um, uh, I appeal to you as brothers. Uh, uh, some here are married, and I think many of us in our marriages have terms of endearment or affection. We also have words that maybe we use when we're mad that sort of identify that we're mad. But when you're fighting, the best thing to choose is not one of the words that you use when you're mad. But to start off with, honey, can we talk about this? You know, it, it's just such a, it just, it just smooths things out before you even get to the issues that are related there. And then he goes on and he, he says that you all agree. Notice the comprehensive nature. He didn't say that some of you agree or that, you know, that most of you will agree. He says, but that you all agree. And some of you may have in your translations, actually, this word translated because it, to, to agree means to say the same thing. And so, again, one of the foundations of unity is that you say the same thing. That you are speaking the same things together. That there's an agreement in the things that you're talking about. And, and as I've thought about this over the years, there's more and more that I don't like this phrase, well, let's agree to disagree. Because really what you're saying there is we're going to say two different things. We're going to be on two different pages. We're going to try and figure out how to get along with two conflicting points of view. Paul is saying, no, part of the way to unity is that you say the same things, that you speak the same things. He says that there be no divisions among you. It's a, it's a, a, a word that is um, schisms, uh, um, and that we not be disjointed or dislocated. It's a, it's a sewing metaphor as well, that, that there be no tears among you. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I do not know the, 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 the reason behind fads that we have today, but why in the world would anybody go out and pay $200 for a pair of ripped jeans? <laughs> really, if, if you want, you buy a pair of jeans, bring them to me, I'll rip them for 50 bucks, and we'll both be ahead of the game. <laughs> but, but Paul is saying here that part of the the, the, he says, I don't want there to be tears among you. I don't want there to be divisions among you. I, I don't want you to be disjointed. I don't want you to be forming alliances. I want you to be whole together. 
And then he goes on and he says, rather, that you be united. You see the, the, the foundation he's laying here? Rather, that you be united. This is an amazing word. It covers a lot of different ground. It, it's, it's a fishing word. It's a medical word. It's a, it's a sewing word. It's a woodworking word. It's a word that, that used uh, uh, in, in Mark to talk about the disciples mending their nets. There's a hole. They need to mend the net, and so they become united. It's a medical word in the fact when bones become out of joint or when bones are broken, they need to be set or they need to put back into place. And so it's got that terminology behind it. It's a, it's a, a word that also describes um, sewing a garment and making the garment whole again. It means to restore something to its former condition, to take restorative action. In fact, the same word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 11, and I, I love this. It says, finally, brothers, and we would say brothers and sisters, finally, brothers and sisters, aim for restoration. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great to have that on, on the mirror of every bathroom where we're married? Husbands and wives, aim for restoration. That's our goal. That's our target. That's what we're shooting for. Not division, not disunity, not disjointedness, not dislocation. We're aiming for restoration. And I love that because it, it sort of implies that we're going to have bumps along the way. But our goal is to restore back to wholeness and completeness. And then notice he says at the end of verse 10 again, but that you be united, restored, mended, put back into place in mind and in judgment. In your thinking. Uh, what I appreciate about this is I, I think what, what Paul is saying is that sometimes we can say the same things, but our minds are just torn apart. This is why I don't like that phrase, let's agree to disagree. But there's an amazing unity that happens then when not only do we say the same things, but we think the same things. We've come to the same conclusions. We've agreed on what it is that unites us. And so there's an internal and an external foundation to our unity. Again, we're not robots. As individuals in marriage and in a church, we don't give up our individuality. We don't give up our diversity, but we do strive for unity. And I think the main areas that he's talking about here is doctrinal unity and decisional unity and corporate unity. That doctrinal diversity in a church is a recipe for disaster. And one of the series of books that I'm most troubled by and have been for so many years is a series of books which is the Views book. Four views on sanctification, three views on divorce and remarriage, five views on eschatology. And the reason I, 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 I'm not warm to those books is not because there's not differences of opinions on those, but it implies that well, the Bible really isn't clear. And that you can really try to choose the option you want. And I know that I bring my own presuppositions. I bring my own sinfulness. I bring my own strengths into interpreting the Bible. And in the end of the day, I can really make the Bible say what I want it to say. And I don't believe that God doesn't know how to communicate to us. I don't really believe that the problem is with His Word. I think the problem is with us and our sinfulness and so, well, again, I don't disagree that there are different ways of looking at certain things in Scripture. I don't think we should be happy with four views. 
or three views or six views. And so I think, again, one of the things that Paul is driving at here is doctrinal unity. It's decisional unity. You know, as a church, we have to make decisions from time to time. What I hope will happen as we make those decisions is that we will begin to say the same things and we will be able to think the same things and the logic and the reasoning that has gone into those decisions will become our logic and reason. It doesn't mean, again, we don't have discussions and debates and, and whatnot and these things, but in the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we've got to come to a point of unity. And this is what Paul is stressing here. Then he says in verses 11 to 12, well, what's the predicament that threatens the unity and the harmony of this church in Corinth. Corinth, And I like the way that Paul deals with this stuff because, you know, I am a guy who likes peace. I really do. I, I, I'm not a guy who likes confrontation. I will deal with confrontation if I have to as a dad and as a husband and even as a pastor, but it's not my joy. But I've learned that sweeping stuff under the table and ignoring stuff is not good. I've learned that no decision is a decision. And I like what Paul does here is he just brings it out into the open. He, 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 he names the issue that they've got to sort through. He, he says, listen, a, a group of people from Chloe's household have come to me, and they've reported to me that there's division among you. He names the problem. He hits it head on. And I'm sure he's not dealing with rumor here. He would, have, he would have investigated a little bit. He would have filled it out. And then he, with confidence, can say this is an issue that's happening in the church. He says uh, that there's division among you. I get that there is different emphases in a church and amongst us from time to time. I know, because sometimes you read a book, and, and that book is the focus of your thinking for that time. And you can get all excited about, you know, the substitutionary death of Christ. You can get all excited about a particular um, view of the end times. You can get all excited about um, a view of sanctification. And that's a good thing. But when it becomes a divisive thing, that's not a good thing. And so Paul is saying, listen, there is some of these emphases now that are threatening to divide you as a church. And we need to get away from this kind of stuff. I understand, loved ones, and I believe with all of my heart that there is a faith that we ought to defend. I I believe that. We have a statement of faith here that matters. It's a statement that you can hold us to as a leadership. You can hold me to. You can hold your Sunday school teachers, those that, that lead your youth to. It's a statement of faith that we believe is rooted in the Scripture. Ultimately, our foundation is in Scripture, and if our statement ever errs from Scripture, then throw out the statement. But it is a helpful description of some of the main things that we embrace here as a church. But when we don't agree on these things, we ought not to hive off into little camps around different personalities and move away from the scriptures because we will start to have division in our church. As Paul begins to address this problem of division, he notes that there are four groups that he can see in the church. I do think that these are real groups that uh, he's aware of in the church. They might not be church names, uh, groups that the church could articulate, but the church is beginning to fall behind certain personalities. There's certainly, they're starting to, uh, psychological realities are beginning to form their, 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 the person that they want to get behind or that they follow. And the real danger in all of this is that they've begun to get their eyes off Christ and they've begun to turn their eyes onto human beings. 
And so he mentions four groups, and I really have hesitated saying too much about these because I don't want to say anything more than we can deduce from Scripture, but I want to say enough that I think helps us understand these groups. And so the first group is, he says, there's the Paul group. I am of Paul. And I think the main focus here is that Paul is the spiritual father. Some would argue that it's primary Gentiles that are Gentiles that are coming back. But I think the issue here is that Paul is their spiritual father. There are many in this church that are indebted to Paul. Paul has been the one who came into their community and he shared the gospel with them. And as they heard the gospel, they were saved. And then he built into their life and they grew in their faith. And I don't think there's a Christian here that isn't indebted in one way to an- or another to somebody who shared the gospel with them or maybe developed them in their faith or discipled them. And they have a real place of meaning in your life. That's not a bad thing. But when we begin to line up behind them as though they're the only thing, we get into trouble. I've been in four churches. Um, and it's not because I've divided, it's because that's my job. Um, but I've been in four churches, and every one of those churches, to one degree or another, there's been one man, one pastor that is revered. And you come to the church, and people always talk about that man. Might have been a building program, might have been an, a spiritual emphasis that was uh, behind that. It might have been a personality, but they talk about that man and how he changed their lives and how he shaped and how he formed the church. And if only we could go back to the good old days, life would be wonderful. And I never, ever want to undermine the work of great men and women who have had significance in our lives. But they're not the measure of health or success. They're simply someone that God used in a significant way in our lives to point us to Christ. And I bet you every one of those individuals would be shocked to find out that people spoke of them in that way. Secondly, he talks about the Apollos group. I think if I was ever to form into a group, this is the group that I would form into. Just because this is sort of where my headspace is at. But Apollos, we learn a lot about uh, uh, Apollos from Luke or Acts sorry, chapter 18, verse 24 and on. He came from Alexandria, which was in Egypt. Alexandria had probably the best, most significant university in all of the Mediterranean. They had considerable Old Testament studies there. Out of Alexandria, the church there produced the, old, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint or the LXX. They had developed a, a whole interpretive system of the Bible. But I, I think the appeal to Apollos was his, he was intellectual. He was smart. And I'm not smart, and so I want to be around smart people to learn from them. And I, I, I love debates, and I love discussion, and I, I, I thrive on that. And, and I've seen that in churches, that people line up be, behind, you know, certain men or certain women who are preachers or writers and, and, and because they stimulate them, they encourage them. But there's a real, real danger when all of a sudden every second word was, well, I'm a Calvinist, and I follow behind John Calvin, or I'm a Lutheran, and I, not in a bad way, but, you know, Luther is the only man that ever spoke well in our life and we've got a host of them in the world today some of you watch them on tv thank the lord for these men and women but when they begin to take a higher priority in our life than christ we're in trouble and then there's the peter group i think the peter group there's no evidence that peter ever came to corinth but there was a significant jewish population that had turned to the lord in corinth and i'm sure that some jews had moved there who had come under the influence of the ministry of peter and this i think was a group of christians largely who loved the law 
They found in the law a place of security. They found in the law, you know, the principles of God's word, but they had not moved from the law to grace. And and we find that in a lot of churches as well, that there's a a lot of people who can't function with principles. They they can't function in a way that 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 is beyond the law, so to speak. And and so there's so many wars and battles that take place in the church because we've got the weak and the strong. And we've got those who say, no, we've got to follow this law. And we've got others who say, no, there's a principle involved here. And so there's a group of people that are what we might say legalists. And then there's the Christ group. I think every church I've been in has had people who might fit into this group. It's not a bad group, but it can be a dangerous group. I think in this group, we find an attitude amongst people who say, well, what do I need man for? What do I need preachers for? What do I need elders for? What do I need the church for? I've I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got Christ. I've got His Spirit. I've got everything that I need. I don't need the church. I don't need preachers. I don't need an authority structure. Who needs Paul? Who needs Apollos? Who needs Peter? We've got Christ. We listen to him. He tells us what to do. And I think one of the real dangers of people in this group in churches is that they tend to make everybody else feel spiritually inadequate. They tend to make us feel like we don't know anything about God, that, that somehow we fail to hear the voice of God. And I hesitate to say this, but I will. I, one of the languages that I'm always cautious in a church about and in groups is God told me. I'm okay with that. I understand what people are saying by that in a certain extent, that they've been reading the scriptures, they've been in prayer, and they really believe that God is leading them or influencing them in a certain direction. I, I get that. But when people use that authoritatively, I, I just I throw up walls. Because how do you ever question somebody to whom God has told them something? And I I think in the end of the day, the only authoritative final word that we have as a corporate body is the Bible. God has spoken here. And so it's always dangerous when people use that in an authoritative way to imply that God has spoken to them on behalf of the church. I probably said way too much already, but I, I think that's a dangerous group as well. And so these groups are beginning to form, and Paul says this is the problem. There's division in this church and people are forming around different personalities and we've got to break away from that. And so he comes and he describes the principle that will bring unity and that is Christ. I wish I had learned this a long time ago. I'm starting to learn it now and it probably would have been very helpful um, well, maybe in my marriage. I'm certainly raising my children and certainly to be a more helpful, effective pastor. But whenever there's division, one of the worst things that you can do is just throw your opinion on the fire of division. I think one of the best things that you can do is sit back and pray and say, God, give me one or two or three questions. That in asking those questions will just open up the issue. And I think some of the best marriage counselors are those who not have a lot to say, but ask two or three questions and have the couple answer them. What does Paul do? He asks three significant questions. His first question is simply this. Is Christ divided? And I think the answer to that in this particular instance is yes and no. Looking back at verses 11, 12, uh, apparently yes. 
Because these are a group of Christians who say, well, you know, I don't need that group. I don't need that group. I don't need that group. Christ is with us. And they've, they've, they've effectively divided Christ. They've cut him up. They've chopped him up. And they've said, well, Christ is ahead of this group. Christ is ahead of this group. Christ is ahead of this group. And Paul is saying, that's what you've done. But as he's answering the question, I think, uh, in a theological sense, he's saying, absolutely not. Christ is not divided. There's only one head of the church. There's only one body. We all belong to that same body. We're not ten bodies or four bodies. There's one body with one head, and that's Christ. And no, Christ is not divided. I think one of the biggest issues in church problems, which we probably have all been in a church where there's been division, but is we get our eyes off of Christ and we get our eyes onto individuals. And so Paul's first question to them is, is Christ divided? The second question he asks them, I think, is brilliant. Was Paul crucified for you? Wow, that that just cuts like right to the bone. Clearly the answer is no. Loved ones, never, ever, ever forget this. There is no human being no matter how brilliant, no matter how smart, no matter how eloquent, no matter how spiritual, that can save you. Not a one. Paul is saying, who crucified for you? Who died for you? Who is it that brought about your forgiveness of sins? Who is it that uh, set aside the wrath of God? Who is it through whom you have eternal life? It's not through me. It's not through Apollos. It's not through Peter. It's through Christ and Christ crucified. This is a message of the cross, loved ones. Uh, This is what unites us as a body of believers in, in in a most profound way. Because we know that every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is no single human being apart from Jesus Christ who has never sinned. There is no human being who can pay the penalty of their sin, let alone the sin of anybody else. There is no human being that can bear the full weight of God's curse and wrath upon them, let alone that on anybody else, except for the spotless Lamb of God who bore our curse who paid our penalty, who endured the wrath of God in order that we might have life. You can't do this yourself. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're trying to figure this all out and you're trying to think, well, so-and-so is pretty good and you know, I've heard that radio program or I've read that book, I'm... And maybe I can do it, you know, maybe I'm good. No. They can't help you, and you can't help yourself. But Jesus Christ can. And his death is all that you need to find everlasting life. And then he says, But were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love this. uh, And I hope I don't say too much um, here that, I shouldn't say, but let me say this. Baptism matters. And notice in here what what Paul assumes. He assumes they've been baptized. Baptism is a normal part of the discipline of obedience to Christ. I don't understand, and I appeal to you as brothers and sisters in Christ as I say this, I don't understand why we have separated conversion and baptism 
sometimes by decades. It seems to me that baptism and confession of faith are part of the same salvation event. And that rather than widening the gap between the two, we ought to be narrowing the gap between the two. What does Peter say when a group of people respond to his message with deep conviction and ask him, what shall we do to be saved? Well, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're a Baptist church. I make no bones about the fact that we believe in believer's baptism that is rooted in one's confession of faith and rooted in the repentance of sin. And that is something that we do as people who can have a cognitive ability in that. And so we come to a point in our life where we recognize our need of Christ. We confess our sins. We confess our trust in him. And then the next result of that is we are baptized. And Baptism in the name of Christ means that we identify with Christ, that we submit to Christ, that we come under the lordship of Christ. And what Paul is saying when he says, were you baptized in my name? He's saying, you didn't give your allegiance to me. You don't come under my lordship. You don't submit your life to me. When we were baptized, I think Romans 6 is so beautiful. We were baptized into the death of Christ, which means we're lowered into the water. We die with Christ and we're raised with Christ out of the water into newness of life. And our whole identity is now bound up with Christ. And as an aside, if you haven't been baptized and you would like to be baptized, we do have a number of forms at the Information Center or the Welcome Kiosk, or you can find them online. We're having a baptism service on Good Friday this year rather than communion. And we'd love to celebrate with many of you who realize that baptism matters. And so he says here, were you baptized in the name of Christ? And I, what I like about this is that, and I've grown to understand this as a pastor. You know, I think sometimes as pastors, I don't know, sometimes position and power and those kind of things goes to our head. And initially I thought, well, I need to baptize people. If you want to be baptized, I got to be the one that baptizes you. After all, I'm the pastor. And I've come to realize how silly and wrongheaded that is. Who baptizes you doesn't matter. That you get baptized matters. And so I don't care if I baptize another person in my life. I really don't. I'd be happy if you're a small group leader or the person who leads you to Christ or your father or, you know, your Sunday school teacher. I'd be happy if they baptize you. I'm just glad you're getting baptized. And so as Paul's getting at the issue of unity, he's saying here, listen, the main issue of unity is really this. You've got to turn your attention on Christ because Christ is not divided because Christ was crucified for you, for you're baptized in the name of Christ. That is what matters, not Paul or Peter or Apollos. You add all these up-loved ones, and you see that we get ourselves into trouble when we get our eyes off Christ and we start following a human personality. I agree, we might be indebted to another human being. I have a debt of gratitude for two or three people who have just had a profound influence on my life. But they have faded into the background. And Christ has moved into the foreground. And it's Him that matters. You know, what I would love more than anything is to have a Christ awakening in our church. 
to have more and more of us turn our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes off of authors and our eyes off of other people and get our eyes on Christ and on Christ alone. Beloved, set your gaze on Christ. Give Christ the allegiance of your life. Recall what he has done for you in his death. Reaffirm your allegiance to him that you first expressed in your baptism and pray that Christ will be baptized today tomorrow or Christ will be magnified today tomorrow and every day until he comes again finally verse 17 I I so appreciate this Paul says for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power that's an amazing phrase I think for me, I just wrote in my notes, keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing in any church is Christ, is the cross of Christ. And in this final verse, Paul reminds them of that priority in his life and by way of reminder, reminds you and I of that priority in our life and in the life of this church. To preach the gospel, the gospel is the good news of salvation. Again, the gospel is, is, is the recognition that when I finally realize that there's something terribly wrong inside of me, that I'm disconnected with the God who created heaven and earth, that that God has somehow began to communicate with me, that I'm realizing that I've got to figure out how to fix this because I can't fix it on my own. The gospel tells you Christ can fix that. Christ can forgive your sin. Christ can bring you back into a peaceful relationship with God. Christ can give you the hope of eternal life. That's what we ought to be about as a church. That's what we ought to be about as parents and as neighbors, is sharing the Christ. Notice what, what Paul says here. I, I didn't proclaim the gospel with eloquent words. I thought a little bit about this and I think what it really means is don't dress the gospel up with verbal pizzazz. You know, I think we have a tendency to do that as churches. We want to make the gospel appealing. We want to make the gospel attractive. We want to make the gospel sort of intellectually appealing to people who are wrestling intellectually. And so we dress it up. And, and we, we, we add words to it and we add arguments to it and, and, and we pretty it up. But the danger in that is then that people buy into our arguments, not the gospel. And they, they buy into our intellect rather than to the simple foolishness of the cross. And when we do that, we, 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 we rip out the power from the cross. And nobody gets saved. And when we do that, we intimidate people for, for like you and I from sharing the gospel. We, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't have the words. I'm not smart. I'm not well read. Well, that's what Paul says. You don't have to be. Just tell people about Jesus. Tell people about the cross. My hope would be very much here that this church would always be a place where Christ crucified and the cross is magnified in front and center. I would hope that if I or anyone else is ever in this pulpit that diminishes that or empties that of its power that you would pull me out of here as fast as you could 
and that when I'm long dead and gone, that if God should tarry and you have an opportunity to look for new people to fill this pulpit, that you would look for someone who is not ashamed of the gospel, someone who will preach Christ, Christ crucified in the cross. Because that is what we all need to hear again and again and again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, loved ones, I think as we begin to consider the issue of unity, which is where we started, you see how the cross unites us? You see how Christ unites us? You see how it helps us get back into a help, healthy, healthy, helpful focus? And gets our eyes off of men and women and their ideas. If you do anything this week, go back and reread and reread verse 10. And say, I'm going to apply this to my marriage this week. I'm going to apply this to my family this week. I'm going to apply this in my workplace this week. And I'm going to try and lay a foundation of unity so that we can have harmony and peaceful relations in these settings. Our God and Father, we come to you today. We're thankful for your word again and for the way in which you have guided Paul to not only deal with these issues, that, but to record them so that we might also learn and benefit from these in our day-to-day living. I thank you for this church, Father. I thank you for the many individuals that make it up and for the diversity that is so evident amongst us. But I pray that our diversity will never get in the way of our unity and that our love for mankind and men and women and what they have done for us will never ever overshadow Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.